Are you ready? It's that time! Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Man Buns and Jesus. Uh, I think we're on, I want to say we're on episode nine. We are back to our kind of regularly scheduled programming of walking through Corinthians. Uh, this is not a side quest, ladies and gentlemen. And today, uh, I, I guess I should introduce myself uh, if you're new. Um, I'm, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Saborius. My other host is Ben Olschlager, and he'll be introducing our guest for the day. And today, with our guests, we're going to be talking out of 1 Corinthians 8. And just so you guys kind of have this background, this is where we're coming from. 1 Corinthians 8 says this. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So where are we going with that, Ben? Well, um, we are going to focus in on uh, Paul's kind of cultural take on the implications of, of a Christian eating food offered to idols. And in that particular day and time, um, Paul's concern was, how does this look to your new Christians? How does this look to um, your brothers and sisters in Christ who might be coming out of that tradition that you are going into these temples and, and still consuming this food. Um, and to help us with that conversation today, we brought in uh, Dr. Chad Lakeys from Lutheran Hour Ministries. Um, and this might just because it's lunchtime here on the East Coast, but I had a really strong food-related connection. Um, the first, no, second time I saw Dr. Lakeys speak, was at a uh, or at the pastors conference here in Michigan um, this past fall, and uh, Dr. Lucchese, you you had a conversation in there uh, around table fellowship, getting together, breaking bread together, 
uh, eating with people in your homes together so that you can strengthen and form relationships in, in your community. Um, and I believe I want to attribute uh, Burger King religion to you as well. Um, okay, good. That was yours. Um, he introduced the concept of Burger King religion, which is you have religion your way. Uh, so between those things and the fact that he's done a ton of research on um, the interactions between the church and the culture, um, he seems pretty qualified to come talk to us about food uh, offered to idols and what some modern comparisons might be uh, that the church is wrestling with today. Um, so first and foremost, Dr. Lakeish, as we're getting into this, actually, can I call you Chad? Because it feels way too formal to call you. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, uh, as we're getting into this, um, did I miss anything on like the issues that we're aware of that that Paul was trying to get the Corinthian Christians to to wrestle with, to grapple with uh, in the issue of food offered to idols? Um, yeah, just to establish some context for, for our listeners. Yeah, I, I don't think so at all. I think, um, you know, we're, we're hearing from St. Paul here, something that's captured really kind of in a nutshell in uh, the very beginning of Philippians chapter two, where he says, do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not look at your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And I think in this passage in particular, he's asking us to pay attention to, you know, the the level of maturity of a new Christian's faith compared perhaps to someone who's who's known and followed and walked with the Jesus for much longer. Um, and, and kind of the associations that you make as you become uh, a new Christian and kind of move out of an old life into a new one. So I think you're hitting it right on the money. I really like the word you use there, Chad, um, the maturity of new Christians, because I think a lot of times we say, or we'll, we'll cash this conversation in, how much do they know? But I think when you use the word maturity, you get a deeper understanding of it. It's not necessarily just what you know, it's how much has that impacted how you practice, how you live, what your attitudes are. Which kind of, I think, brings us into this conversation of when we're looking at the maturity of the people around us today, and I, I can speak for my context out here in California, there are a lot of newer believers. Uh, there are a lot of non-believers as well, but uh, a lot of people you'll come across, they, they, they aren't generational Christians necessarily. So when we're considering the maturity of the people around us today, what are the different idols we need to watch out for in in our churches in our culture in our society like what are what are we what should we be being careful of yeah so i think two of the biggest are you know the ones that we already know from scripture um in the sermon on the mount jesus treated god and wealth as, as rivals and then um also from philippians paul talks about us as, you know, seeking satisfaction through making gods out of our bellies. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, if we were to try to metaphorically or analogically, you know, come up with something that's roughly equivalent to those ideas today, and I think 
I think both of those are alive and well, right? There's something evergreen about that ancient wisdom from Jesus and Paul, and we should expect that from Scripture, but we could we could substitute more in. I think a great example is the fact that I think um, we feel like at times we've got to so-called please the gods, as it were, right? Whether um, it's it's the god of myself or or the the gods that we sort of set up for ourselves in the world that seem to be running maybe under the radar or subterranean in some way. A good example of this um, comes from David Zoll in his book Seculosity. And there he talks about, um, in a really helpful way, about the fact that, you know, we use this psychological or spiritual language of, of feeling like we're enough, right? It's kind of getting at this sense of worthiness, right? So I, I pulled this quote out in prep for, for talking with you guys today. So he says, um, you hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, the value, the vindication, and the love that we seek would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. So, I mean, that's kind of in a in a big umbrella or big bucket sort of way, you know, talking about the the ways that we're trying to in some sense, uh, please the gods, as it were, right? As if there's some sort of external standard held out there over our lives, and we're all trying to achieve meeting that standard so that we can feel like, you know, we're loved, or we can feel like, you know, we're acceptable in some way to to maybe God himself, you know, the God of the Bible, or, you know, whatever it is we might imagine to be God. And I wonder how much of that is also not necessarily explicitly, but maybe some of that natural knowledge of God and kind of this, and maybe it's part of kind of the connection with original sin, this inborn need of, we know we're not good enough and we're trying all these different things to get there. Yeah, for sure. I think there's some connections there. And that, that begs another, and what was interesting, you bring up David Zoll, when I was a vicar down in Florida, he spoke at our pastor's conference, and it was, it was an interesting experience, because for anyone who, who's familiar with him, he isn't Lutheran. He's familiar with, the, with Lutherans, but he, he isn't Lutheran himself, and what I found fascinating is he, he was there, and he was talking about this book seculosity and about all these different things that we do to try and be enough and he kind of when he transitioned out of talking about some of that stuff he was pretty point blank with us he's like you guys as lutherans are maybe the most not uniquely but most well suited to deal with this because we have this as, as humans, we have this innate, we're not good enough, we need something to be good enough, and you Lutherans have this incredible theology of the gospel, and and you're, and he said, you guys are very dedicated to that, and then he got his, his point in, and kind of kidding, I, I don't, I don't know how much he was kidding, because I think there's truth to it, he's like, you guys just have to get out into the world and let, and like, actually interact with people to share that, that gospel <laughs> message, um, 
Yeah. Which brings yeah, up this. I think his book, well, I was just going to add, I think his book, you know, I'd recommend it to any pastor because it, it has, just like he's saying, I think it has a lot of gospel handles, as it were, you know, where we're essentially what he's arguing in that book is that we come up with some sort of replacement religion to try to be enough. And really, the idea of enoughness for us, we would capture it in our language of, you know, trying to achieve some level of self-righteousness. But he's right. Ultimately, you know, from our confessional documents onward, we're dealing with the problem of justification. Um, and that is what his book is actually about, right? These replacement religions, these attempts to be enough are some alternative replacement um, for, uh, for or an alternative approach to self-justification. And so I think um, we, we've got this kind of nailed down, right? For us, confession, um, the confession that we're not enough or the feeling that we're not enough, right, needs some kind of forgiveness or some kind of response. And, um, and God has that for us um, when we offer, you know, the real justification of, of Christ's absolution and the saving message of the gospel. And for anyone, any any of our listeners, like from my congregation, and I'm sure from Ben's as well, um, that is why every single one of our services has confession absolution. We'll like, especially because in my context, we do contemporary worship and there's some flexibility that comes with that in, in what our services look like. Confession and absolution is always there. And that's one of the places where I don't mess around with the wording uh, too much from from what we have in like the Lutheran service book, because I think it's really important that that absolution that you're talking about is there consistently. Um, I think the only exception we have to that is on our Good Friday service, we hold the absolution and we say this is part one, part two comes on Sunday. Um, come back for for that but all of this it kind of raises the question how how do we then interact with these idols and and maybe how do we interact with people who are struggling with them um i think well i don't know it might be good to like back up a little bit and talk a little more about what we mean in terms of you know what counts as the idols uh -huh. uh, that, that we're sort of sacrificing meat to today you know uh, one of the questions you all asked me to prepare to think about is uh you know what might be some of the quote-unquote meats that we consume that are being offered to idols um so if you permit me like a bit of a long answer i think First, it's good to recognize we're, we're trying to work on a metaphor here, right? We're coming up with something that might be analogous to what Paul was trying to talk about, because where we live and in our context, you know, we don't see people sacrificing animals to um, strange altars and so on. And we we don't struggle with this issue. Should we eat that food or not? Right. Or or it would go to waste. These are some of the questions lurking behind what Paul and the people he's writing to are dealing with. So. I think it's there's that. And then there's also the sense that Paul's emphasis really tends to be less on the meats that are sacrificed to idols, but more that effect um, that, say, mature believers might have on those whose faith is less mature, maybe more fragile 
and um, and what those people would think if mature Christians are carelessly or cavalierly going ahead and, and eating that meat. Because for them, you know, they're in the early stages of faith. And so associating oneself with anything connected to idols might be, for them, those new Christians, it might be confusing at best or at worst, damaging to their faith in some way. Um, because the perception would likely be something that, you know, the idol itself and Christ are put on a level playing field. I mean, that just might be one interpretation. And so we don't want to go in that direction. And that's why Paul is giving this encouragement. So if we were to push that metaphor, I think one of the things that we could talk about would be the fact that in our time, um, we we all sort of walk around with this ability of, of worrying about guilt by association. It's almost a socialist sensibility. And what I mean by that is uh, I, I think it's fairly well-known, obvious, documented, easily observable that we live in a really polarized cultural moment where as a society, you know, we're broken. We disagree with one another a lot. Um, and sometimes it gets pretty angry, pretty heated. Um, and we choose on the basis of, you know, what we believe to be the truth to hang around with people who think like us and to disassociate with people who disagree. Um, and so a lot of Christians, I think, would associate um, or, or believe that associating with someone who's publicly a known sinner Right. So via the, th the sins that we can see publicly. Right. So those include things like, you know, sexual promiscuity, um, same as in Jesus day, you know, prostitution or same sex attraction or violations of what are theologically considered to be settled gender differences. We'd think of marital infidelity. We would think of of people that we know who exhibit, you know, symptoms and behaviors related to drugs or alcohol or some other sort of addiction. And and even, you know, maybe the newest of all of these is um, when we see people associated with certain political movements that we are, that we consider to be out of alignment with our supposed Christian values, right? This kind of association would be considered, you know, suspicious. Um, and and so as Christians, if we, we encounter these people who behave in certain ways or hold certain views that we disagree with, we're like, I, I can't associate with them. And, and so we get caught up in this disassociation. And troublingly, I think this is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus, right? He dined with sinners. He dined with tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, um, and, and was treated as if associating with them was somehow corrupting him. And I think that's the underlying assumption of for, you know, when we associate with people who are caught up in something that's publicly observable as as sinful or caught up with a group who harbors you know different convictions or or ideas than we think are the right ones um, and so as people watch us right those whose faith is less mature um, same as for Jesus right believe that that he was doing the wrong thing in associating with those people and in our time I think the same challenges exist when we associate with people that that other Christians think we shouldn't associate with well maybe because of the level of maturity of their faith, they they don't get it that um, just because I'm associating with them doesn't mean I'm going to be like somehow corrupted. And in fact, it it might actually take on the character of the way that Jesus approached these people. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is we should calm down about this whole Bud Light situation. 
Um, I don't know what the Bud Light is. Ben. <laughs> so Ben <laughs> sees a dumpster fire in society and he's like, I want to jump into that. Let's deal with that. <laughs> so okay. so the, the situation in brief, uh a I don't even know how to describe this human being. I don't know if they describe themselves as trans or not. Uh, a man who uh, exhibits as a woman most of the time uh, was hired and is a social media influencer uh, was hired by uh, Anheuser-Busch to talk Hired Bud by Bud Light. Anheuser-Busch is making a big deal about that distinction. Okay. Hired by Bud Light to hawk Bud Light to Gen Z and millennials. Uh and it has not gone over well in like super conservative Christian corners of the internet that I unfortunately True. am tapped and into. And the stock, they lost like $6 billion of stock over that. That's true. They did. So let's not downplay how many people got upset about it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, sure. That's yeah, sorry. and so that's, that's part of, that's part of what I'm getting after. I think you know sometimes we just decide I can't associate not just with people, but even you know maybe brands or products because somehow they don't fully represent me and who I am and what I think the truth of the world is. Um, and you know maybe there are times for that. You've got to analyze every situation as it comes to you. I don't know that there's a great principle that I could offer that people should follow. But that's the sort of thing I'm after, right? We're seeing that kind of disassociation happen across our society. It's it's breaking our the community, the connection of our society down significantly. A flip side example and one that's perhaps more well known would be like people boycotting Chick-fil-A because of its association with like focus on the family and some of the other uh, groups that it works with. Um, just to kind of put more context on the Bud Light situation. Yeah. 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 So, or, or just um, those who are outside um, the the church saying, you know, we're not going to support Hobby Lobby or something. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Yeah, so, exactly. so it's as bad in the church as it is outside of it. Right. Um, so, in, in a way, I guess we could say the church is behaving in a very worldly way. Right. We're just mimicking or aping what we see the world doing, um, at least in this regard. And I have to say, I I hadn't I don't think I've ever thought about this passage in that kind of context. In do we have like are we avoiding people because of the association, which I think can go both ways, right? And, and that's I think kind of what Paul's talking about. What you mentioned when you talk about context is there are some situations where yeah maybe I shouldn't associate with this group at least at this time because of the message mm -hmm. it could send to those weak in their faith. But there's mm -hmm. the flip side of Jesus dealt with people like this. And not only yep. dealt with, not, he didn't just put up or tolerate with, he, he ministered to, and he showed love mm -hmm. to, and he, and he proclaimed the gospel to. Um, but I've never thought about it quite in that way, so I, I really appreciate that um, insight. I got a little wiser today, I think. Yeah, I'll you know, bring, it's just I'll bring you back I, I now. <laughs> Paul, Paul seems to care less about you know the the meat being sacrificed to the idols and more the effect of that behavior on those who are watching the mature Christians, and so that's one of the thing one of the reasons that I bring it up because it's a this is it's just a metaphor you know trying to to say 
in what ways are we doing the sorts of things in our time that Paul might be concerned about? Mm-hmm. And so when we simply decide to dissociate from people because of the ideas they have or the way that they behave, are we potentially losing opportunities to share a good, strong witness of the gospel with them? Um, and and are we overly worried about, you know, somehow being corrupted by their influence? Well, if that's the case, you know, what, what's the status of our own faith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are good reasons for talking about kind of the fragility of faith in our own time for everyone, but that's a totally different topic. Yeah. Good question for you that we I didn't really prepare you for. One that I'd be genuinely interested to hear if you have any immediate thoughts. Um, another reason that we wanted to have you on the podcast for this particular topic, um, above and beyond just your expertise on the interaction between church and culture, is that you did not start in the church. Um, you're an adult convert. Um, and so I'd be interested to know from you if as you were um kind of growing into the church if there were things that you saw that as a as someone maturing in the faith as someone growing in the faith were perhaps a meat sacrifice to an idol in in your life um and if you if you don't have any in particular if you know some from someone else's story or someone else's conversation um that be willing to share that'd be great yeah, um, when I look back, I, I don't know that I would put it in that same framework. You know, it's a meat sacrifice to an idol, but, you know, metaphorically getting at what Paul, I think, is trying to get us to pay attention to in this passage. Um, you know, when I was becoming, uh, well, essentially, my process of conversion took a while, right? I, of course, there's the the moment of the Holy Spirit generating faith in us, but then there's kind of reorienting your life to being a follower of Jesus versus the way you used to be. And so as I kind of learned some of the ins and outs of Christianity over time, you know, I started to hear about people saying, you know, um, I don't know that you should watch, you know, like Disney programs because, you know, they talk about a different kind of enchanted world than the biblical worldview talks about or Harry Potter for similar reasons or Captain Planet or things like that. Um, you know, so, okay, that's one thing. Um, and I don't know that I was like massively influenced by that sort of attitude. I I came across it. And again, it's the same sort of idea of the, the eye is the lamp of the body. What, what you put in kind of influences, you know, what comes out. Um, it's another phrase from the, the Sermon on the Mount. And there's something to that, but uh, there's also a way of of understanding cultural artifacts and the creation of beautiful things and stories that, you know, there's not, I think, a foolproof argument for abandoning, you know, Harry Potter and Captain Planet and Disney and things of that sort. But on on the flip side, you know, it's like, hey, uh, if people are going to get out like Ouija boards at a party, like you probably should, you know, make a beeline out of that party. Okay, well, now we've crossed a totally different line. That's a totally different thing that Christians shouldn't be messing around with, right? Because of the intentionality of of those sorts of objects and those sorts of practices. Um, This is directly leading you away from from Jesus as Lord. So I I slowly kind of started to pick up on this as I, I became a Christian. And 
still, you know, 25 years later, there's there are times when it's a process of discernment, trying to figure out, you know, what what is the effect of consuming this or watching this or passively being influenced by that? And then how does it play itself out in my life before the watching world of of people who maybe don't have as mature of a faith as, as I do at this point? So um, you kind of, I think you've mentioned three kind of cultural idols or um, societal idols that we're wrestling with, um, the stomach, greed, and then this just very divided cultural moment. Um, and we've talked, like kind of danced around talking about some of the ways that we interact with these idols. Um, but could you give some more specifics as to things that were really um, that we see frequently as as we, especially those in the church, interact with these cultural idols, um, and maybe a little bit into some of the message that that sends to people who are still maturing in their faith. Yeah, um, I think a difficult one for me. Um is watching what's happening in the church at large right now um so much of how the church behaves in our culture is easy to see in a way that it used to be much more conspicuous i mean almost everything is much more easily observable in terms of human behavior now because you know, you can film it or we're putting it out on social media or there's the 24 hour news cycle and, you know, so on and so forth. And so the, the church is under a lot of fire and criticism right now because of internal scandals of all kinds of different sorts. And so hugely concerning for me is the fact that we've lost a massive amount of institutional trust. And we're not alone amongst the institutions in American society where trust is substantially on the decline. So I'm trying to think of ways where we can try to restore, recover some of that trust. And that's difficult because while we're trying to make a way through the world that is faithful and genuine and open spaces to introduce people to Jesus and the gospel, we're still surrounded by other Christians who are probably unwittingly caught up in ways that, you know, end up inadvertently making the church look bad or or people interpret us negatively. So an example of that would be, you know, to go back to the fact that we, we live in this polarized and broken society, right? One of the things that we tend to do as humans is, is strongly associate with um, people who are like us, right? People who think like us, um, who share similar values like us. And, and we do that almost exclusively um, to to the, the detriment of being exposed to anything that might be different, um, potentially uh, something that's going to teach us something or provide us wisdom. And, and we end up in an echo chamber, right? Surrounded by ideas that we've you know, heard um, and that we're parroting back to other people or ideas that we've put out there and they're being parroted back to us. Um, and, and kind of as a group, we think we've got the unquestionably right perspective on the world. 
right? I think from a Christian point of view, there is probably no fully right perspective on the world, at least not one held by a human being, because for one, none of us is Jesus, nor do we have access to like that fully objective God's eye view, right? So we're all kind of muddling through and making our way as pilgrims. Um, we're always already immersed somewhere in the world, right? We're shackled with bias and that's really difficult to overcome, but we can become so settled in our positions and our convictions that we start to think everybody who's not like us is, you know, wrong or stupid or evil, or that there's something wrong with them. Um, and, and maybe we'll think that they're so bad that we've got to get rid of them. Right. And so it's possible then that we become prone, even as followers of Jesus. And, and you are seeing examples of this in the Christian church. We become prone to justifying violence against those other people and maybe even killing those with whom we disagree. Um, it's important to admit that, in a sense, a lot of people come to this view from a position of feeling humiliated you know, ignored or uncared for, or like something has been taken away from them by whoever it is they believe their enemy to be. Um, and that's caused a lot of resentment. And I think Christians have have definitely felt this, conservative Christians in particular, um, because culture is changing around them in a way that, you know, they end up with less, less of a voice, less of a fewer places at the table, maybe none at all. Um, and they think everything that's important to them is, is, you know, there's some them out there that's trying to undermine um, all, all the things that they hold sacred. And as a result of some of that resentment, right, it's no surprise to see some of them pushing the boundaries of what it means to fight back, to seek vindication or to win at all costs. But my concern is this is absolutely not the way that Jesus would have us live. And there are enough people out there in the world who know at least a bit about the church, the ways of the church, the ways of scripture, the ways of Jesus to know that, you know, fighting back, seeking vindication, seeking to win at all costs is not the way of Jesus. So when the world watches us do that, you know, they see a violation of, of the very things we claim to be committed to. You know, for Jesus, power was made most real in powerlessness, right? And he showed us that by giving up at first his equality with God and then his very life. Right. But we're seeing Christians make really angry moves toward vindication and vengeance. And that's happening, you know, across our society. And so um, I grabbed another quote for for talking through this. You know, as a conservative Christian, the journalist Peter Weiner served for a lot of his life in Republican political circles. But he's he's written about how bad this can get. And I appreciate his voice because he's kind of a an insider on the group that seems to have had harbor this resentment, like so much has been taken away from them. They're really feeling this loss, right? And so he can kind of own that, but he can also kind of get a little bit of critical distance on it and say, look at what this is doing to our Christian witness. So recently in the Atlantic, he wrote these words. He says, Human emotions can be dominant and even determinative in distorting and deforming people's judgments. Individuals who honestly believe that the Bible is authoritative in their lives, who insist that they cherish Jesus's teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, such as blessed are the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, 
um, who also, you know, uh, cherished Paul's admonition to put away anger, wrath, slander, and malice, and replace them with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, a spirit of forgiveness, and above all love, which, to quote Paul, binds everything together in perfect harmony, these same Christians find themselves embracing political figures and a political ethic that are antithetical to these precepts. Many of those who claim in good faith that their Christian conscience required them to get passionately involved in politics have, upon doing so, discredited their Christian witness. Jesus, he says, has become a hood ornament, in the words of the theologian Russell Moore, in this case placed atop tribal and culture war politics. So, you know, it's as if the role of Jesus as Lord plays something secondary to the more important allegiances that we have, right? Whether that's our party or, you know, just essentially kind of making sure Christian values um, continue to sort of dominate in our culture, often by trying to force them upon others through legal rulings and so on. So that was a long, think, you know, drawn out way of talking about this, but it's something that we've got to pay attention to in terms of the fact that, as Weiner says, right, we we have um, discredited our own witness um, when we behave this way, even even when we're trying to justify it from a Christian point of view. We're not actually living faithfully according to the ways of Jesus. And I, I want to address our audience a little bit here. Um, on that specifically if you're if you're listening and you're thinking and maybe you're in that position where you're feeling lost you're feeling like something has been taken from you um i i want you to recognize that even if like if you look back at things you have done and you have been that harmful image where people look at you and they see some hypocrisy, they see some, you're doing things kind of antithetical to your faith. That doesn't mean you're a lost cause. Don't, don't hear this only as a condemnation because the gospel is there for you just as much as it is for anyone else. And what's more, the willingness to say and to live in such a way where you say, yeah, I have acted harmfully. And, and the repentance that can come after that can train can turn that into an incredibly positive witness of like our faith has room for this turn. Our faith has room mm -hmm. for this uh, the the humility to admit, yeah, I I messed up, and I have a God who overcomes that um, through Jesus' sacrifice through the grace that is offered there. So kind of reach out if if this is something you struggle with. We're still like the church is still here for you. The gospel's still here for you. That that doesn't discount anything that Chad said, because um, I think you're a hundred percent right in in so much of that, Chad. Uh, because yeah, if we find ourselves in this position, we should repent. I mean, uh, I I'm unapologetic in calling for that. But at the same time, right, if we're going to confess our sins, the the absolution of the gospel is is it covers everything. Right. It's the greatest gift that we could possibly have. And shoot, if we find ourselves, you know, falling back into these ways that undercut our Christian witness, you know, when we're out there in the world and then we show up again next Sunday and we've got to repent again. Well, that's just the way of the Christian life. 
it isn't justifying being bad during the week and coming into church on Sunday to get it all sort of cleaned up. It's it's the it's more of an admission of, you know, the reason that I'm a part of the church is because the criticism that the church most often gets is that we're full of hypocrites, right? The, the church is, is hypocritical. And and I I'll own that accusation and that criticism till my dying day. Um, you're you're darn right I'm a hypocrite, and that's why I show up every week. Even the president of our church body is, you know, he's said um, he, he's talked about this, and, and you know, when he hears that critique, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, his response is, and there's always room for one more. So I'm like, yes, right on. You know, that's that is the the approach of Jesus. That's what he's inviting us to, because none of us can follow the ways of Jesus without the help of Jesus, and without attaching ourselves to to the community of his followers, to be an immersed in an environment of a bunch of people struggling along this this pilgrimage that we're on. Yeah, and and something I, I think is also worth saying is that it doesn't always get on an individual scale. It doesn't always go that far. And some of the things that I've seen in the people around me, sometimes in myself, is maybe you're not going on a tirade on social media or getting involved with a group you shouldn't. But I think kind of two extremes that maybe I, if you're thinking of a bell curve, they maybe occupy that first standard deviation. Um, the two, I was trying to make that accessible. And as I listen <laughs> back to what I said, I'm like, that wasn't helpful at all. So uh, this is one step away from where you're supposed to be rather than three. Yeah, you're like you're pretty close to to where you should be, but the two kind of extremes I think that are within that those bounds of normalcy are there. I think there are those who overengage with kind of the the language we're running with this quote unquote food offered to idols, whether that is people or groups or politics or money or like whatever whatever is serving as that idol. There are those who overengage with it right and who engage with it in times that are um they're they're not using really the the discernment that maybe they should and the message they're sending to other to people about their faith and to other christians who, who are maybe weaker are this is okay because i'm going to engage with it with no qualifiers and i'm just going to and kind of you have that um but then on the flip side, the other extreme within this normal bounds is kind of a disconnect of like, I'm just, I'm not going to deal with any of it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to engage with that. Like, I, I'm going to kind of just disengage and say, I'm not going to deal with it because I don't want to risk that message. And I think the tough part and kind of the word that Bierman would love to use is tension. Um, we got to hold that middle where it's like, yeah, sometimes we should be interacting with these groups because we're called to show witness to them. We're called to show love to them. But at the same time, like there are situations where we say, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going with you on that one. Um, uh, an example that keeps popping into my head is, is uh, people who are struggling with homosexuality. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to lunch with you. Yeah. We'll have conversations. I'll have you over to my house, whatever. I'm not going to go with you to a pride rally. I'm probably not going to go that because that's uh, more of a show of support of the lifestyle rather than kind of the critical place that that I'm in. Um, so 
that's something that e even if you're not at these extremes, those are kind of smaller extremes that I think are even easier to slip into because you're not doing anything crazy. You're just choosing to stay home or, or choosing to kind of go out and say yes to everything. So I think, I think the examples that you were given are, are, are moving us away from what Paul's getting at in the text a little bit. I, but I, I think the move you're trying to make is important. So the examples I gave are very much, I'm trying to stick with the idea, you know, that Paul is talking about behaviors that might be observable and then, you know, leading people further away from maturity and faith rather than closer to Jesus. But I think some of the things you're talking about, so for example, if, if we come back to the money or wealth idea, you know, maybe you're not an affluent sort of person. Um, but you're so anxious about being able to pay your bills and take care of your family and so on that, you know, you struggle with the call to, um, to, to tithe, for example, and you withhold that. And then, you know, you, you know, you're struggling with that, you know, you're called to do, um, to, to, to give your first fruits. Um, but that's, that's usually a, a fairly private thing. I mean, very few people know whether you give to a congregation or to charity or not. Um, and, and so, of course, that's a it's it's not visible in a public way in the way that Paul's talking about, but it's still the kind of thing that's going to create, you know, a certain sort of anxiety like you're talking about of, you know, the gospel is going to cover that too, right? Repentance is going to cover that and the absolution is going to to respond to to those sorts of struggles in the same way um but it, it's a little further afield from where what paul's after in the passage when he's talking about something pro, uh, public am i am i like responding to you in a way that you know am i feeling where you're trying to go with this talking to your people yeah yeah and i i think you're right i think there's they're called separate but related issues if that makes sense because mm -hmm. um, i think some of the smaller things the internal things that i'm talking about can if if we're not watchful build into the things that you're you're kind of bringing up um, yeah one one more question and then let's maybe roll into some some takeaways for our folks um we've talked a lot in this particular episode on about how on an individual level, some of our, our public acts can be something that confuses or draws people away uh, that are, are still growing in their faith. Um, but I think it's also possible, and we see this culturally to some extent, that institutionally this can happen too, where um, church institutions can do something publicly that is a poor witness. Um, and so if you were to speak to the leadership of our congregations or the leadership of, you know, St. Mark's of the, you know, flatlands of Iowa, uh, the most generic Lutheran church that you can think of, um, what, what would you tell them to avoid and what would you tell them to 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 try and move towards in terms of the things that they're thinking about as they're they're processing some of their their interactions with these things? 
Sure. Um, I think that churches and their leaders are regularly tempted by the idol of success. And that tends to be interpreted through, you know, markers like church size in the sense of membership, you know, how many members are on the, the roster or how big is your church's budget or how big is the building or how beautiful is the interior aesthetic or in a different way, right? Especially for pastors and other professional church workers, it's interpreted through, you know, the, the sense of success it's interpreted through how well they feel like they're liked by their parishioners, right? Or how well attended their events or their programs or their Bible studies are, or how good of a preacher or a teacher, you know, the pastor or the DCE thinks he or she is. Um, not that all DCEs are she's, um, but it's a, it's a more open space there. Um, and, and I think we end up comparing ourselves to the church down the road or the church across town you know, that appears to us as a place that is successful by those standards that I just noted. It's difficult not to be tempted by all of this, um, partly because, you know, we're, we're human creatures. It's difficult, at, I think, at times to separate ourselves from that temptation and really rely on the anchor of God's love for us as kind of the only thing that really matters. And then, sort of from that foundation, try to continue on being faithful in ways that engender that same central importance of God's love in the lives of people that God has called us to serve in the places where he's put us. Um, so th those are ways, you know, that they're subtle, right? I, I think, again, it goes more toward a little of what we were just talking about. It's a lot of private thinking um, but, but the comparison is outward. It's to something, you know, public or a, a standard of success that, that we kind of work with in American culture, you know, bigger is better, cooler in a more of innovative is better, you know, creative is better, um, cutting edge, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, and they, all of that becomes idols, right? Because we step, we don't stop to ask, well, is it faithful, right? Is it really getting people closer to Jesus? Um, or, or is it just, you know, about growing a bigger institution, getting more famous, right? Kind of leaning into celebrity culture. Thanks. Um, now is the time for our, our final, like, I guess, learning part of the show. Um, if you were to try and boil this incredibly complex and overwhelming topic down into one night nice like bite-sized takeaway um or if there's one like particular thought from this whole conversation you really think it would it be of great benefit to uh the the, the general christian populace to just kind of hold on to as they're thinking about some of these interactions what would that one thing be yeah, if you were to listen to nothing else that we've already talked about, I think the important thing that you need to pull from this passage, and that I think you, you guys are trying to get across, is if we don't take heed to the fact that if we say we're Christian, um, people are watching our lives. They're not just listening to our words. They're watching to see if what we say about ourselves is something that we also take seriously, right? And so people in our society know just enough about Christianity to know if we're following through with who we say we are. And if we don't take heed of that fact, then we have no right to lament the hostility 
that we claim to experience because I think we're guilty of bringing it upon ourselves. We're complicit with the very problem that that we're we're having to endure, right? We're behaving before people who might believe. Um, and it's important for us to think about that, right? They might come to faith um, even in the weakest way. Um, but but when we kind of follow after these idols, we treat the idea of following Jesus as if it's no big thing, right? Like it doesn't matter much, like it's merely an intellectual commitment or something like that to some set of beliefs that have little to do with our lives. But I think Jesus is calling us and he's calling those people who are watching our lives to something much bigger than that, right? And we never know how much our lives are influential for the kingdom. But in the end, right, the really cool thing is that God has chosen to use us to introduce others to Jesus. He didn't have to do that, right? But he did, right? It's in the same way they didn't have to choose moms and dads to bring about new life. I mean, the first humans were created out of the dust of the ground. So he could have just kept on with that pattern of things, but he didn't. He chose to involve us. Um, so I think there's a certain responsibility that comes with being a follower of Jesus, right? Of course, we're all sinners. We're all going to fail pretty regularly, but that isn't an excuse, right? Sinner or not, we are called as members of the priesthood of all believers to make Jesus known in the world. So I think we we can and we should pray that by the power of the Spirit, he helps us to see where we're not doing so great in that regard. And then, as appropriate, to repent, seek forgiveness. And then by that same power of the Spirit, seek to live more faithfully before the watching world so that all might come to revere Jesus as Lord and receive life in his name. Josh, you had anything to add to that? Uh, I don't know if add is the right word. <laughs> uh, but in my typical fashion of oversimplification, brother, brothers and sisters in Christ, people are watching you. Don't forget it. Yeah. What about you, Ben? You got any takeaways for us? Any last minute wisdom from the man with the slightly shorter hair? If your friend offers you a Bud Light, drink it. Um, Gross. Why? <laughs> be a good guest, Josh. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> to be clear, everyone, my distaste is for beer in general. <laughs> not specifically Bud Light. If I go to your house and you offer me a beer, I will say no every single time. <laughs> um, so we've reached the more more or less the end of our podcast. Um, before we pl shamelessly plug this show, um, Dr. Lakeys, do you have anything that you want to plug uh, that you are working on that you think would be a, of benefit for people to be aware of? Yeah, I, there's a whole bunch of really great stuff going on at Lutheran Arm Industries. Um, we do ministry all over the globe. Um, and in the United States, we're working to equip churches, especially lay people, to be able to share their faith in winsome ways, right? To be able to gain a hearing in this really challenging, polarized culture. We want to help you all in the households in which you live to you know, do good, strong, sticky faith formation. Um, we're trying to help you find ways to connect into your your communities and your neighborhoods. Uh, we've got all kinds of resources to help you do that. If you go to lhm.org, um, of course, many of the parishioners on this podcast have probably heard about the Lutheran Hour. 
the weekly radio show program um, that's been going for um, it's in its 90th season. Um, it's kind of our our classic claim to fame, how we got started as a as a mass media gospel proclamation organization because we have had the first ever gospel proclamation radio show. We were the first Christian ministry to get into radio. And that way we moved into TV. Now we do a ton of stuff on social media. Um, and in fact, we're trying to reach people in in the United States by treating it as its own new and unique mission field. So one of the things that I work with substantially is reaching out to Hispanics um, in the United States. And there's about 66 million of them. That's a huge population. And they are a part of us, right? Um, they not they haven't always been, and and they don't always get treated that way in American society. But but the blood of Jesus was shed for them too, um, and so we're trying to share that good news with them as much as we're trying to share it to our traditional, uh, longtime audiences. So yeah, thanks for your support and checking out the website, and uh, yeah, see what you can find there that might be useful for you in a small group or your congregation to run through, and let us know how we can help. Uh, thanks again for joining us today, uh, Chad. It's It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, if you think that somebody in your life, this is the passive aggressive part of the show. If you think somebody in your life might be eating uh, a modern meat sacrifice to an idol, send them this podcast. Um, they might learn something from it. Um, and or unfriend you on Facebook. <laughs> that might happen too. Um Either way, it'll be the start of a really interesting conversation. Uh, follow us on whatever podcasting platform is yours of choice. Uh, if you want a way to get a in whole, get in contact with us and you don't have a way to reach out to us personally, we have a Facebook page that we check occasionally to make sure that no one has contacted us on it yet. Um, and uh, like and subscribe, leave a comment so that uh, more people can see this and and engage in God's word and uh, in some of these conversations. So with that, brothers and sisters, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.